0: Hello and welcome. I'm Andrew Veef, and this is Rebel History. The year is 1903. The place, a bustling Seattle street corner. Trafficking liquor is the most fiendish, corrupt, and hell-soaked institution that ever crawled out of the slime of the eternal pit. It is the open sore of this land. It takes the kind, loving, husband and father, smothers every spark of love in his bosom, and transforms him into a heartless wretch, and makes him steal the shoes from his starving babe's feet to find the price for a glass of liquor. It takes your sweet, innocent daughter, robs her of her virtue, and transforms her into a brazen, wanton harlot. The open saloon as an institution has its origin in hell, and it is manufacturing subjects to be sent back to hell. Looming tall atop his soapbox stage on the Seattle street corner, six foot five, Reverend Mark Matthews lambasted the sinners corrupting his city with alcohol. His long black hair and striking eyes earned him the nickname the Black Maned Lion. In the papers, reporters claimed he was without question the best orator in the city, a master of smashing similes that stick and burn and scald. Arriving in Seattle in 1902, Matthews was a man of contradictions. He railed against the vices of liquor and gambling, and in the same sermon would decry the evils of rising corporatism, demanding protections for the worker. Like many in his time, he believed that women should not have the right to vote thinking it would destroy traditional home life. He became pastor at Seattle Presbyterian Church, growing it to the largest of its kind, with over 3,000 followers in his congregation. Above all else, Reverend Matthews hated liquor and in his crusade to banish it, he had many allies. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was founded in 1874 in Cleveland, Ohio, and had been quickly gaining power ever since, their members making the pledge, I hereby solemnly promise God helping me to abstain from all distilled, fermented, and malt liquors, including wine, beer, and hard cider, and to employ all proper means to discourage the use of and traffic in the same. One of the movement's early leaders gained notoriety by entering a bar with a large hatchet and hacking the place to pieces, making the hatchet an official symbol of the movement. By the early 1900s, the group had established a significant foothold in Washington State, spelling trouble for Seattle's thirsty residents. The ladies would stand outside of saloons, singing religious hymns and reciting loud prayers for the men inside. Another influential movement emerged at around the same time. The Anti-Saloon League grew quickly and established itself as the leading prohibition lobby in America. The organization was practical in its approach, concentrating on legislation, and caring about how legislators voted indifferent. whether they drank or not. The organization used a network of churches across the nation as bases they could mobilize from. In Washington, writer and editor Ernest Charrington led the organization's temperance efforts. He was a skilled writer and politiker, devising campaigns to sway elections in favor of dry candidates. Charrington and his allies went to work trying to secure legislation referred to as Local Option, in which each community in Washington state was given autonomy to decide for themselves if saloons should be illegal. By 1907, the region's largest newspapers the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, and the Seattle Times had endorsed local option, along with a majority of the media. When the bill failed, 43-44, to 44, in the state capital of Olympia, the Anti-Saloon League published the name of every lawmaker who had voted against, and began efforts to end their careers. The intimidation worked, and both parties came out in support of Local Option, passing the bill in 1909. Overnight, Local Option ignited political battles that had been smoldering for decades. Wets versus dries. Each side campaigned ferociously. There were parades, speeches and the occasional brawl throughout the state as each side vied for the upper hand. A year later in 1910, the political landscape shifted dramatically as Washington state legislators amended the state constitution, granting women the right to vote. This was a full 10 years before the federal government adopted the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote nationwide. Women had actually achieved the right to vote in Washington State twice before, in 1883 and 1888, after a campaign through the territories by Susan B. Anthony. But each time the law was overturned by the territorial Supreme Court. The state's liquor lobby had played an influential role in overturning those original suffrage bills, as women voters were found to vote for stricter regulation on alcohol. By 1912, there had been 220 local option elections and 140 dry victories, effectively abolishing saloons in nearly half the state. Riding high on phase one success, the organizations continued their march toward total prohibition. That year, 1912, capitalizing on their political momentum, pro-dry politicians pushed through an amendment giving the people of Washington state the powers of direct legislation. Groups could now initiate legislation by filing measures with the government. The first measure was the Statewide Prohibition Initiative of 1914. Its aim was to outlaw the sale and manufacture of alcohol on January 1st, 1916. The legislation crafted by the Anti-Saloon League was careful not to outright outlaw alcohol. Only the sale of alcohol residents would still be able to import a limited number of bottles for personal consumption, and drugstores could sell to patients that had been prescribed by a doctor. The law did not keep a man from drinking, but instead forced him to do it in his own home, abolishing the public saloon. The Anti-Saloon League dispatched one of their top political operatives, George Conger, to head up the statewide campaign. The group gathered over 100,000 signatures for their petition and raised over $150,000, nearly 4 million by today's standards, for the coming political battle. Campaign efforts took on a militaristic efficiency, organizing the state into precincts, areas that included roughly 120 families, each precinct headed by a captain and their squad of 10 canvassers. Churches mobilized in force to spread propaganda to their communities, throwing parades, giving speeches, and holding town hall meetings. Beyond the liquor lobby, the staunchest and most powerful opponents to the legislation included the state's two largest newspapers, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and the Seattle Times. Neither was particularly in favor of liquor as much as they were against what they saw as a violation of personal rights, injury to the economy, and an impossibility of enforcement for the bill. In response to the bill, the Seattle Times editor, Colonel Alden J. Blethen, published his outrage at what he called the wild-eyed moralists, headed by their conservative mayor. Seattle does not need to swallow this nauseous dose. It has already been punished enough for its red flag mayor and other freaks without facing the statewide calamity of prohibition. The Seattle Chamber of Commerce also came out overwhelmingly against the bill in a secret vote of 632 to 45 and projected it would cost the state of Washington upwards of $11 million per year, roughly $300 million by today's numbers. emboldened by recent political success in ousting his public rival, corrupt mayor Hiram Gill. Reverend Matthews threw himself and all the resources of his church wholeheartedly into the fight for statewide prohibition. He delivered fervent speeches lambasting the rum-soaked political parties that had led the United States into sin, ever building toward the crescendo of election day on November 2nd, 1914. Initial reports gave hope to the opponents of prohibition, but ultimately the people of Washington state voted in favor of the measure 189,840 to 171,208. As of January 1st, 1916, saloons, breweries, and distilleries would all be illegal. December 31st, 1915 was a chilly night in Seattle, the streets quieter than would be expected for New Year's Eve, just hours before prohibition laws took effect. As it started to snow, only 75 bars throughout the city were open to residents trying to get in a last few hours of revelry. The establishments that were open drew such crowds that the bartenders did not have time to mix drinks, serving up straight liquor, using up as much of their stock as possible before it became illegal. As midnight struck, most places closed down early, and sent revelers into the snowy night. However, in defiance of the new law, Magnolia Bar kept on serving its thirsty patrons and at 2.55 a.m., the party was busted by police. The owners were arrested, becoming the first victims of Washington's prohibition. Under the new law, a loophole existed in which residents could import a case of 24 beers or a half gallon of alcohol every 20 days from somewhere out of state. A permit was required to do this and in the first month alone, there were 18,000 requests for permits. This practice continued until 1917 when legislators passed the Bone Dry Law, banning the import of alcohol. With legal importation at an end, a lucrative enterprise arose for those willing to brave the treacherous journey sailing from San Francisco up to Seattle with boats laden with alcohol the trip along the jagged wavy coastline was dangerous in itself but was made all the more frightening by pirate jack marquette and his crew of bandits ready to relieve unfortunate smugglers of their cargo with guns drawn pirate jack's men would load the alcohol onto their own boat and finish the route up to Seattle where it would be stashed in Pirate Jack's hideout and sold to local buyers. Marquette's most frequent targets were ships working for the Billingsley operation run by brothers Logan and Fred. The pair used a Seattle drugstore as their base of operations for an international racket spanning from Canada to Cuba. They suffered increasingly large losses as Marquette's men became brazen in their pirating. The feud between the two groups soon erupted into gun battles throughout the city, leaving dead on both sides. It also left both sides vulnerable, and local agents eventually raided Marquette's headquarters, capturing their gang and enough evidence to also bust the Billingsleys. With the two major players in prison, there was a brief power vacuum in Seattle Rum Running, waiting to be filled. For the more scrupulous buyers, a legal loophole meant that they could obtain medicinal alcohol. Doctors could prescribe alcohol, often rye whiskey, scotch, or gin, to patients suffering from such ailments as cancer, anxiety, depression, back problems, or sleep disorders. There were many doctors ready and willing to write these prescriptions. Patients could then take these over to be filled at any drugstore. In just three months, 65 new drugstores sprung up to meet demand, many of the shelves resembling a liquor store more than a drugstore. So-called soda shops also offered alcohol to in-the-know patrons and would mix it with the sugary sodas available to the public. Following soon after, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution was proposed by Congress on December 18th, 1917, establishing the prohibition of intoxicating liquors in the United States. Political representatives felt the pressure of the temperance movement, and lobbyists seized on anti-German sentiment following World War I. Most breweries were owned by German descendants who had come to America with old world brewing techniques. The amendment was ratified by the required two-thirds of states on January 16th, 1919, set to go into effect a year later at the beginning of 1920, and just like that, America's great experiment had officially begun. The Anti-Saloon League soon introduced legislation dubbed the Volstead Act, which served as the model of enforcement prohibition and created the Bureau of Prohibition, whose officers would have the responsibility of carrying out arrests and shutting down illegal alcohol operations. The Volstead Act was initially vetoed by President Woodrow Wilson, but his veto was overridden by both the House and Senate, making it law on October 27th, 1919. Next episode on Rebel History, Bill Boeing needs a stiff drink, the baby-faced police lieutenant, and the beginning of an empire. Rebel History is written, narrated, and produced by Andrew Fieth. Special thanks to Blair Lohman for her guest appearance on this episode. Rebel History, shining light on the shadows of history and the rebels who dwell there.